Welcome to this special edition of Care Talk, your home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. We are now at the 2020 EMIDS Healthcare Summit. I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics, and today I have the privilege of having an intense conversation with Dr. Alan Lotvin, EVP of CVS Health and President of CVS Caremark, and more important, cardiologist and adventure junkie and an innovator. And we're going to get into what he's doing at CVS, what he is doing as an inventor, and how he, through CVS Caremark, is transforming care. Welcome, Alan. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Thank you. Alan, you've done a lot of interesting things at CVS Caremark and Aetna. Uh, We're going to get into them. But I think one of the most interesting for me is the big investment of time effort you've made into CVS Kidney Care. And certainly one of the most frustrating things for me has been, you know, at CareCentrics, we focus on care to the home. Why there isn't more dialysis at home and why we haven't innovated in kidney care. Can you tell me a little bit about how you folks look at that problem and that opportunity and kind of what you're doing to change it? Yeah, no, that that's a great question. It's uh, one I love I love talking about, right? It's one of my one of my uh, uh, I hope one of my lasting legacies. So we got into into kidney disease because as as I've gone around and talked to all sorts of different payers over the last you know decade and a half of my career, uh, many times people would say whatever I was talking about was all well and good, but please can you help me with 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 dialysis because I, I don't have great options. The outcomes are terrible. And it costs a lot of money, and so I didn't really have solutions. And um, through the course of a bunch of other different projects, I met a, a an absolutely fascinating person, arguably one of the most interesting people I've ever met, president company excluded, um, named Dean Kamen. And, and Dean is um, was an inventor uh, of of a of a radically different home hemodialysis device. And um, was need, was looking for partners who could help him uh, commercialize it, bring it to market. And and as we stepped back and thought about it, you know, the way this uh, this uh, machine is 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 organized and architected, essentially, we would need to take care of complex people in the home, um, deliver a certain amount of supplies on a reasonably regular basis, and be able to stay in close touch with them. And and you know, generalizing kind of what what I've been good at in my career running specialty pharmacies, it's that, right? We take care of relatively sick people in their home, um, dealing with them on a monthly or more or more frequent basis and keeping very close tabs on them. And so we felt like it was a reasonable kind of fit for the organization. We felt that the relationships we had with um, payers w- would help accelerate the, the commercialization. So we we set set about um, finishing the development work with with with, um, with Dean. We're currently in our uh, executing a, a clinical trial um, to uh, achieve FDA clearance for for the device. And you know once we once we we've gotten that, we think this will be an important tool for people to 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 reach those goals that have been recently set out of of getting 50 percent of people. At home on on dialysis safely, and and just to kind of put this in context, I mean, I think kidney care costs Medicare north of thirty five or forty billion dollars a year. Um, uh, that uh, in the rest of the world, something like twenty to seventy percent of dialysis is done in the home. And 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 what about the U.S.? I mean, what what are our statistics like in terms of home dialysis? 
Yeah, so, so, so in terms of home dialysis, there's a couple of things in there. So one, we are at about 11 or 12%. And of that 11 or 12%, um, the, the, the vast majority, call it, call it you know, uh, all but one, one, to two base, two, one to 200 basis points is peritoneal dialysis versus, versus hemodialysis. And peritoneal dialysis is fine. It t- tends not to be a very, not the longest lifetime solution. So a lot of those people go on to hemodialysis. Um, so as you said, in the in the in the best uh, centers in the world, but also in parts of the United States, having 40, 50 percent of people on home dialysis, many of them on home hemodialysis is common. And, you know, when you get people on home hemodialysis four or five times a week versus the three times a week in center, just that more complete, you know, clearance of all of the you know accumulated toxins in your body essentially normalizes, you know, plus or minus, you know, the, the mortality and morbidity. And it's, it's, you know, versus, you know, called a 20% mortality. It's literally life-saving for people. And it, it's also on top of life-saving, it's quality of life pre- preserving because, you know, if you're, if you're doing in-center dialysis, you're spending three to four hours a week, three times a week in a center. You got to get there. You got to get back and forth. You know, you tend not to feel great right afterwards. You tend, so when people are doing it at home in the evening or overnight four or five times, they, they just feel better and they're able to maintain their jobs and maintain the quality of life. We've met, I've met a bunch of people around the world actually on home hemodialysis who you would never know were, were sick. They're starting businesses, they're, they're you know, they're coaches, they're parents. It's, it's really fantastic. I'll tell you one other statistic, which is when you, if you go to one of the centers in Toronto, um, on the wall of the nurses station is a is a wall of baby pictures. That, that may not sound that unusual in a nurses station. Um, however, it's all pa- baby pictures of uh, women who conceived and delivered full term babies on home hemodialysis, and you know it is nearly impossible to carry a child to term on center dialysis. It's just not, there's just not enough, not enough, uh, um, you can't do it. So just that to me t- tells you the need for, for these sorts of, these sorts of things in the, in the, uh, in the world. Now, now what is it about the innovation that, that CVS and you and, and I mean, Dean is one of the great U.S. inventors of our generation, probably the premier one. He's, he's as productive and prolific as Thomas Edison uh, with a lot more commercial uh, applicability in in real time, and 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 uh, he's known for the Segway, but he's got all kinds of medical and device work that's pretty remarkable. But what is it about what you are going to do that's going to help make home dialysis more of a reality for those those long suffering American patients? Yeah, so it's a great question, and 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 given that we're in a clinical trial, I'm, I'm going to use what may sound a little bit like um, hedging words because I just don't want to overpromise, right? So there are a couple of things. So, so starting from the beginning, this device was, was designed from the ground up to be used by patients in their home safely. So the entire interface for the patient is simplified. You know, there's no, um, is, essentially you don't have to run tubes and run wires and, and worry about valves and connect bags. It's all self-contained and integrated. You know, the, the the patient has very little to do. In fact, getting the machine ready for dialysis is a five or six step process of which the first step is open the doors. Then as it brings itself up to temperature, um, getting actually onto dialysis is another, I don't know, eight or nine steps of which at least three or four 
are confirmatory. And so it's, and the machine walks you through it. It doesn't let you do something that would be dangerous. Um, so that's one, one, one very important, just the user interface. Um, uh, there are some safety features designed into it to, to protect patients who might be at home from needle dislodgement. Um, that's one of the things people worry about. And so this machine has features that are, that are um, designed to, to uh, essentially turn the machine off in, within, within um, uh, milliseconds if there's, a, if there's an issue and it doesn't rely on kind of external separate steps. It's all integrated. And then last and, and probably most importantly, we don't talk about it enough, I think, when we, when we think about this is um, the... Dialysis machine itself is 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 mated to a, a device that makes sterile water in you know prodigious quantities. So often the limiting factor in in home hemodialysis is is having enough water to do for the to to literally flush all the toxins out. And and by making extremely high quality water in just enormous quantities, we can provide flow rates that are uh, equivalent to what you would find in a in a in a, a large in-center machine. So it's a combination of user interface designed for safety and a different water water system that we think addresses most if not all of the of the issues that 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 we were identified as as barriers and hurdles. So it's a better experience for the patient. Is it cheaper for the system? I'm going to answer that in a couple of different ways. So you mentioned that there's $35 billion of spend in Medicare for dialysis. That's the direct cost of dialysis. If you look at the indirect, the other associated healthcare costs from those patients, it's $100 billion plus. So it's the number one line item on on the Medicare budget. Um, If you talk to the people at the VA, it's their number one item also. So first and foremost, by giving people... uh, uh, more complete dialysis, more frequently at home. Um, the medical literature, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll over time add to this. The medical literature would say you reduce um, hospitalizations, you reduce need for additional drugs, and probably reduce total healthcare costs by by fifteen to twenty percent. As you think about the um, the actual cost of delivering dialysis, you know one of the big one of the big costs right now is is a, is the is the fixed infrastructure of labor and and um, sites that that cause cause costs. So if you're at home, right, you're using you're doing it yourself. You're in your own house. We we don't need that infrastructure. So you know, at the end of the day, you have this really. I found it to be an incredible opportunity to create substantially better clinical outcomes to lower costs for uh, particularly commercial payers, right? And to, and to really accelerate an innovative solution um, to, to, to get more care for more people at home. Now, I certainly, when we started this two or three years ago, certainly didn't foresee a global pandemic, but, you know, taking really sick people who are at high risk clustering them together on a frequent basis in, in any institution, whether it's a skilled nursing facility, a hospital or a dialysis center, and then having staff go between them is not really what you want where you want to be in a pandemic. So but just this is a really big idea. One you know, around one in seven adults in the US have CK have chronic kidney disease. This is this is really exciting. But but now that we've brought up the pandemic, the ever present pandemic, 
How do you think that's going to transform? I mean, obviously at CareCentrics, we've seen a lot more interest in more care to the home, um, a lot more of a need for what we're doing in terms of care traffic control, being an advocate and a support. And really, as you know, Paul Farmer talks about accompanying the patient around their journey. Um, how do you think that the, the COVID is going to transform the way we get healthcare going forward? Because it's got to have long-term effects. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the longer it goes on, the more durable those changes are, right? You know, I, I think we're going to see in, in American cities, we'll start looking, as we get back to quote unquote normal, we'll start looking like many Asian cities where a good substantial, a good chunk of people will be wearing masks all the time when they're outside. And I think just this has really changed so much about the way we um, consume so many different things. And so I think there'll be durable changes. I think one of those durable changes will be in the delivery of healthcare. And, and you know, as, as, as we think about it, um, you know, bringing more, more services, more clinical capabilities into people's um, local communities. And I define community broadly as kind of in their home, um, digitally on, on their devices, um, or or in in a in a retail setting, bringing bringing care to people rather than having people have to go somewhere to get care sort of feels like it's it's something that we're going to see more and more and more of. This could be the um, you know the the moment where we we really flip over to much more virtual care, and I think it's going to require you know obviously changes in some regulatory environments. It's going to require some some new thinking about healthcare services, some new thinking about technologies. I mean, how do we use technology? Because to some extent, a lot of the things that you, you would do in a, in a physician's office are becoming uh, feasible to do remotely um, using technology. You know, one example uh, would be, uh, you know, if you went to a dermatologist and you know, you, they, looked, they used a special camera and, and light to look at your, to look at your moles, there's a number of companies that have, you know, and those devices, if you're a dermatologist, were very expensive, you know, in the, in the high hundreds to a thousand dollars. You know, there are now devices that you can clip to your phone that have uh, equal, equal optics and obviously much cheaper. And then they're, they're paired to, um, you know, artificial intelligence diagnostics, much like, much like the retinal cameras. So I think those sorts of things are going to both change the experience and change the cost of of, of delivering the, these services. We all, what we're seeing as well, Alan, is a, is a real need for personal care, nursing. We're seeing a shift and an interest in leveraging other care care navigators and, and care delivery uh, support around an, sort of an integrated approach to patients, which in some ways is easier to do. When you're delivering stuff in the home, but I think what is going to make it really powerful is the ability to digitize and simplify a lot of what doctors had to get access to, you know, via an office visit. Because I I think done correctly, and it's interesting to get your perspective as a cardiologist, it really creates a lot more leverage for doctors than they've had before. As opposed to again, sort of if you think about um, any number of types of of chronic care management, delivering it, monitoring it in the home. Uh, does with 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 folks with uh, sort of playing at the top of their license really gives doctors an ability to get a lot more leverage. Do you think that's we're going to see that anytime soon? Yeah, no. I think John, you said something really important, which is get doctors to practice at the top of their license. I think we should get all health professionals practicing at the type of top of their license. We 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 know that there are going to be physician shortages. We know it's hard to 
Uh, it's hard now in many parts of the country to get doctor's appointments, ex-COVID, right? So I think if we get to a point where, you know, the things that you need doctors and, 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 and you know, full medical training to do, A, that's where we should have doctors working on, right? You don't need a, uh, a physician to titrate someone's statin dose, right? That can be done very well algorithmically by nurse practitioners. I personally think by pharmacists. Um, you know, in collaborative practice agreements, you can, you know, and as we get to, you know, again, lower and lower cost of stuff, it becomes easy to have point of care machines all or all throughout the communities where people can, you know, get their cholesterol tested, share it in a, in a, in a, in an appropriately private manner with their, with the patient's control and have the, uh, either an algorithm overseen by clinicians or a clinician, you know, titrate those the, the the dose without ever having to see a doctor again it's not just about it's it's not just about the the doctor's time it's also about you know the the, the patient's experience and I'll, I'll, if i could take 20 seconds you know we see millions of people in minute clinic and about half of the people we see in minute clinic don't have primary care doctors we refer 3.4 million people or more a year to primary care doctors it turns out that about half of those people actually don't want a primary care doctor. And you would say, why not? And and I don't have a great answer. I haven't done a lot of research, but I'm just talking to people. It's like, you know, if if I want to go to Miniclinic, I know I'm going to drive three to five miles or six miles because I can look on the website and see exactly where it is. I know exactly how long the wait time is going to be because we put it online. I know exactly what the cost is going to be because we, you know, we used to paint it on the walls. Now we put it on a TV screen on the walls, and I know the visit's going to be 20 minutes because that's the, it's it's a consistent experience. You know, contrast that with going to the doctor. And again, I, I'm a cardiologist. I'm not trying to throw doctors under the bus. You're probably going to have to drive 15 to 20 miles. You don't know how long you're going to be in the waiting room. You don't know how long the visit's going to take, and you don't know how much it's going to cost. That uncertainty is unsettling for a lot of people. And so it's and it's not an experience that I would consider a kind of modern commercial experience. So I think we need to help healthcare not just get better, cheaper, and faster with better outcomes. We also need to have it start to approximate the expectations that people have around the experience and the ease of use and the simplicity of scheduling and all those sorts of things that we take for granted in most other parts of our life. Well, but if you, if you, and I think Alan, COVID is going to be a forcing function, not just for telehealth. What we're seeing at, at CareCentrics is a lot more interest in doctors leveraging nurses and and, and uh, LPNs and, and folks who can go to the home, a lot more flexibility and openness to technology. If we can monitor more information, if we can share more information, what's remarkable to us is, is as centered as the system has been around hospitals and doctor's offices or SNFs, there really is no visibility to what happens to patients. Um, and, I, and I think that the, you're, you're absolutely right. Healthcare is about the most inconvenient, non-consumer friendly uh, 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 system we could have developed. And I'm hoping that COVID will be a forcing function for innovation that's in, that's in the patient's best interest. And that actually ends up helping doctors do their jobs and, and, and to your point, do the jobs that they were really trained for, as opposed to the administrivia or clutter that often, that often, that often kind of, you know, sort of fills their day. Um, but I, I, I just pray that that COVID, that we, that the innovations that work in COVID, um, you know, are sustainable. Maybe we talk a little bit, Alan, about uh, how you're thinking about it, Caremark. 
you know, obviously we're we're focusing on innovation in, in this episode, but we're all we all need to have uh, some solutions to this pandemic. The the vaccine is sort of the cavalry. Everyone's uh, the our leader, our, our fearless leader, is suggesting it's right around the corner. But but uh, the the challenges are huge, um, and we need to wrap relatively quickly. But you know, you represent with CVS Caremark one of the biggest chunks of the supply chain and delivery chain of this. What's your level of confidence that we're ready? If the vaccine is ready, you know, six to six six months from now. Yeah, so I, I'm 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 pretty confident. I'm confident in a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we, we've uh, we've been working with all the appropriate authorities to ensure that we have the right um, that w- that, for example, pharmacy technicians can can administer the vaccine. We've been working to understand how to best um, support the unique uh, cold chain requirements of all the different vaccines. Um, thinking through the 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 information technology and, and information needs of tracking patients, scheduling appropriately, so that you get the booster when it's needed, and make sure you get the right booster. So all those things are are, are things that we've been actively working on with other with other um, uh, with other you know uh, stakeholders in in the in the supply chain to ensure that. Uh, when vaccines are available with the appropriate stratification of need, right? Because we want to be sure that the highest risk patients and first responders and, you know, people in hospitals and doctor's offices are getting those vaccines quickly, that, that will be, will be prepared to support the needs of the country. And again, you know, n- there's nothing inherently different about what we would do for, for vaccines than what we do every day. I mean, there are nuances that are different, but you're not building something from scratch. With all of the uncertainty around therapeutics and vaccines, you believe the supply chain and the delivery system we've got can handle it? I believe that we will. when we get there, we will be in good shape to handle it, much as we've been able to deal with uh, the incredible volume of, of testing. Alan, I would, I, would, I would argue that perhaps I w- I'm hoping for better on vaccines than testing, and I, and I think uh, you, you've made a good case for that. Um, I, with with that, I think I want to wrap this, and I really thank you for this fascinating and, and wonky but really relevant conversation. It's given us reasons to be confident um, that in, in this very uncertain time, we're going to have a path to uh, to vaccinate the country. So thanks, Alan. John, my pleasure, and re- really good questions and a great conversation, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing it.